Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. There's an old axiom with respect to quality and culture that says if something is popular, it can't be any good. Certainly that's true of fast food, overhyped action movies, and maybe even some crummy literature. However, there's a way that creativity can be combined with commercial success that bring out the best of both. And what's more, creativity in this regard is not something that's limited to those that are born geniuses. We're going to talk about all of this today with my guest, Alan Gannett. Alan is the founder and CEO of TrackMaven, and he's the author of a new book entitled The Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time. Alan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. First of all, I want to talk about this notion that that somehow we often think that if something is incredibly successful commercially, there must be something wrong with it in terms of its creativity. So one of the fascinating things about creativity is actually two different types of creativity that academics look at. One is what they call little c creativity, which I think is a very cute name, which is just the act of creating something new. But the type of creativity most of us want is what academics call big C creativity, which is create something that is new and recognized as valuable and values a social construct. It's a social phenomenon. We have to agree that something is valuable for it to be valuable. And so the result is that the things that we deem as creative are also the things that we deem as hits. And I don't mean hits in the mainstream way. It doesn't have to be a hit song like Taylor Swift, but it can also be a hit paper at an academic conference or a hit among the stuffy art critics in New York, but some group of people have to agree that something's both new and valuable. And so what you often find is that things that are popular in one generation and maybe viewed as you know frivolous at the time, later we recognize that, oh, those are actually quite creative. Think about the Beatles. The Beatles in the 60s were viewed as you know basic pop musicians, but now, of course, we view them as these creative geniuses. And so Oftentimes, I think that we struggle in the moment to separate this idea that um, popularity and recognition could be intertwined with creativity, but the reality is that so much of creativity is about recognition, because when I throw paint on a canvas, it's not worth anything, but when Jackson Pollock did it, it was. And so there's something more to creativity than just technical skill. I mean, it seems that there are two parts of that. One, the degree to which that value deals with the test of time, whether the value holds over a period of time. That seems to be one part of it. And the other aspect is the degree to which something creative is validated, either in a commercial sense or in some kind of creative sense within a particular group. Yeah, I think what you find is that we tend to really focus on actually how people, how the reaction was at the time, and then how consistently was a creative able to achieve that reaction. So there are other people in the 60s who had songs that were successful as the Beatles, but the Beatles were able to do it again and again and again. So I actually think it's less about did it stand the test of time, but did the person show their ability to consistently morph and change as the styles changed? I think that's actually the skill when we talk about creative genius. That's the skill we're fascinated by, right? How is this person able to keep their finger on the pulse? How are they able to do that? And what my book's about is that when you actually look at the science and you do the field research, you find that it's very difficult, but there is some rhyme and reason to how you can actually do that. And talk a little bit about that rhyme and reason because you really break it down into uh, some very specific areas. So the book is broken into two halves. So the first half of the book is sort of like uh, Mythbusters. So it's 
breaking down some of the mythologies, both around the history and science of creativity and debunking those and telling some of the truth that we know about, you know, talking about how the story of Mozart's been overhyped and how we actually know how these magical aha moments work from neuroscience. Then the second half of the book is I interviewed about 25 living creative giants. So these are folks like Pasek and Paul, the songwriting duo behind Dear Evan Hansen, La La Land, and The Greatest Showman, um, Ted Sarandos, the chief content officer of Netflix, um, Brenda Chapman, the first woman to win the Oscar for Best Animated Film. And what I found when I did these interviews is that there was four recurring patterns, four things that these people did to actually enhance their creativity and get better at this ability to develop the right idea at the right time. And it all comes down to this foundational thing I realized. There's actually been this amazing amount of research over the last 30 years into what drives human preference. And really, what creatives are so good at doing is figuring out that. Because what drives human preference, it turns out, is that we have these two competing urges. It turns out that we like things that are familiar because they make us feel safe. The unfamiliar is scary. You know, if we see a house we've never been in before, we're scared to walk into it. It might, you know, get hurt. We're not just going to open the door and walk in. But um, when we walk into our own home, we feel safe. Even if maybe we're coming back from a much nicer hotel, there's something comforting about our own home. It's familiar. But we also have this other urge. We also seek out things that are novel, that are new, that represent potential sources of reward. When we were hunter-gatherers, we would look for new sources of food, new berries in a field. But this seeming contradiction that we like things that are both familiar but also novel, on one side makes no sense. But then what you realize is that this is actually our brain's really elegant way of balancing risk and reward. See, we like ideas that are familiar enough to be safe, but yet novel enough to be interesting. And this is why you see in creativity, so much of creativity has one foot in familiarity, one foot in the novel. The original Star Wars was a Western in space. Right now there's that you know, sushi burrito trend that's blowing up. It's sushi, but it's a burrito. You see this in music with the amount of sampling and remixing and featured artists that goes on. Often when we talk about creativity, we use it almost as synonymous with innovation, but the reality is that familiarity is really about balancing the old and the new. Of course, the extension of that is when Steve Jobs says something like, people don't really know what they want until somebody tells them. Yes, but even with that quote, if you, think, if you look back at Steve Jobs' um, progress, I mean, Steve Jobs is a highly um, incremental person, right? You think about the original computer that he built, the whole interface was the main sort of invention. You think about the original iPod, it was a MP3 player, but in this new format, then the iPhone was an iPod with a phone. And so you see, and the iPad was a larger iPod. And so what you see is that in reality, you know, oftentimes I think we evangelize this idea of this leapfrog innovation, but actually we don't like that. Look at Apple with the Newton in the 90s. The Newton was a spectacular failure because it was a leapfrog innovation. Those same features later became something that people actually wanted. But what oftentimes you mistake is that something can be technically proficient. It can be technically advanced. It can have the best features. But if your audience isn't ready for it, it still will be considered a failure. Right. And, and that is, in many ways, the basis of, of most entertainment. It's the basis of most drama in particular, the idea of finding surprises and a different way to tell a familiar archetype, a familiar story. Correct. What you find when you actually look at some of the research that's been done around 
stories, um, and there's been some recent research done with computers where they process stories through natural language processing, and what you find is that there's recurring story patterns and recurring story arcs. And this has actually been something that storytellers and writers have known for decades and hundreds of years. I mean, Kurt Vonnegut, um, when he tried to get a master's thesis in anthropology, he actually went and manually mapped out the arc of lots of these great novels and found four recurring story arcs. And he talks about this and talks about how ultimately when you look at stories, what creativity is is telling that story in a new and interesting way, but it's not reinventing the story arc. We still ultimately like you know, stories to go from rags to riches. We like the man in the whole story where something's going well, there's a dramatic turn, and the rest of the book or the rest of the movie is them getting out of that dramatic turn. And so we actually have a pretty clear set of constraints that we like and things we are willing to sort of experience. And I think oftentimes people who want to get into creativity think their job is to rewrite all the rules. And really, your job is to pick which rules to rewrite. I mean, it's the basis of so many things. Television and radio are both great examples where the object of the exercise is to surprise people within a format or a construct that's comfortable to them. Oh, completely. I mean, sitcoms, you know, all follow a three-act structure. And that originally came out of the fact that how many commercial breaks they wanted to have. But, you know, eventually that became just this is how we write sitcoms. They have a three-act. It's almost... Um, you know, like the ancient Greeks were talking about this, and it translated to, you know, 30-minute television today, and that's how we tell stories. And that's actually, when you watch a sitcom, what you come to expect. And you see this with very successful shows like Law & Order. Law & Order have a very clear structure to how the episodes unfold, but what you're watching for is, well, what is the texture? What is the nuance? What is the characters? How are they going to deal with this plot? How are they going to deal with this situation? And so I think oftentimes we... Um, have too much belief in our own interest in the purely novel and the purely new because there really was such a thing as pure novelty, which is probably impossible since we don't live in vacuums, um, you probably wouldn't like it. It would probably be too weird, too different, right? You wouldn't want to watch a 20-hour movie with no protagonist. It just sounds terrible. (laughs) The other question in all of this, and, and this goes to all the people that you talk to in putting together the creative curve, the degree to which this is something that creatives think about when they're doing whatever mm-hmm. it is that they're doing or whether it is something that flows naturally. I found that both were true. There were some people who they knew that something was going on, but they didn't know how to sort of abstract it and talk about in that sort of abstract way. And then there were other people who were very, very conscious of the sort of abstract things that were going on, often because someone who was older in the creative field had sort of taught them. So I think both are true. But whether or not they were conscious of it, I found they still followed the same things. They, you know, For example, I talk a lot in the book about how some of the most successful creatives are also some of the most, um, the most ambitious consumers. They tend to consume huge quantities of creative products in their vertical and their niche. And they go very, very deep and very, very narrow. They want to have watched every single... Uh, you know, action movie that's ever been made. And, you know, that person wants to be a great action screenwriter. And so they go so, so, so deep. They know every nuance, every texture, every nook and cranny, every turn of that genre. And so when their task then is to create something that's both familiar but novel, they have the information necessary to do that. They know where are the lines to play with, where are the things to blur, where are the things to push. And so consumption is actually 
a surprisingly important part of the creative process. Talk about it in terms of contact with other creative people. What you talk about is creative Mm. communities. And we see this with clustering of creatives in in different urban areas in particular. So, you know, we have this idea of the solo genius, like, you know, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, like these very individual people. But that's like comically untrue. I mean, this is one of the sort of myths of creativity that's so ingrained. I think, you know, the second you spend a minute on it, kind of unfurls, which is that, you know, Steve Jobs had Steve Wozniak on day one. Elon Musk, when he built SpaceX, had millions of dollars and was able to hire the world's best rocket scientists. So the result is what you see is when you actually dig into creativity, you find that creativity really, it takes a village. I mean, you know, I think about even just from a meta perspective with my book, you know, my name's on the cover. I'm the one on this call doing the promotion for it. But you know, there's an agent, an editor, a research assistant, a copy editor, feedback readers, there's all the people I interviewed. It's clearly a group effort. And I think oftentimes with creativity, aspiring creatives see the sort of marketing and PR engine of creativity, and they see the sort of front man of creativity. And I think, well, oh, wow, that person is able to do all of that. And like, well, no, they're not. And in fact, the best creators are actually very, very comfortable with this idea that they have gaps, they have weaknesses, and their task is to fill those gaps and fill those weaknesses and so that other people can actually help them achieve the biggest things they can achieve. Of course, what they bring to it is the ability to see the big picture, to pull all those elements together. And it depends, right? I mean, some creators, for example, you see I talk about in the book the story of Pasek and Paul, the songwriting duo over the last 20 months has had this, you know, they've won... Tony's, Grammys, uh, Oscar, um, I mean, it's just been Golden Globe. And what's so interesting is that, you know, Justin Paul and Benj Pasek are wildly different. Benj Pasek is this bubbly, like, you talk to him on the phone, you can basically hear him jumping up and down, and he's this big ideas guy in sort of the classic way. But he also is an unstructured thinker. He also isn't, you know, it's hard for him to focus. Justin Paul is very, very diligent. He's very systematized. He's very thoughtful. You know, he's very quiet. When you interview him, you have to like draw him into the interview and keep asking him questions. And, you know, each of them independently, you know, would they be as successful, right? Would they be able to achieve these things they've done when they're both in their early 30s and they've won all these awards and accolades? Well, probably not, right? Part of the reason why they're so effective is that together, they fill each other's gaps. They fill each other's weaknesses. And I really think that you know, they're stronger together than they are apart. And so when you talk about creativity, I think oftentimes we have placed value on certain roles or certain pieces of the creative process. Uh, but the reality is they're, they're all important. The other aspect, and, and I'm curious how, what kind of feedback you got on this from so many of the people you talked to, is the ability to execute. Because a lot of people have mm-hmm. great ideas but don't do anything with them or unable to execute? So I think the thing that's really important is that, again, there's this differentiation between timing and technical ability, right? And so technical ability is something that you need to develop. Timing is also something you need to develop. And it's very hard to get both, but it is possible. And with technical ability, what's so interesting is that you know, we have this notion of natural-born talent, of child prodigies, like Mozart, for example, is this 
sort of you know prototypical example. If you ever watch the movie Amadeus, he's you're three years old, blindfolded, playing, playing the piano for the Pope, and it's um, kind of comical, um, but it's also wildly untrue. I mean, the real story of Mozart is when he's three years old, he had a helicopter dad who hired for him the best music teachers in all of Europe and made him practice three hours a day. And he wrote his first truly original piece of music when he was 17, which still sounds impressive. Except one, it's not very good. And two, this is after 14 years of practicing um, three hours every day under the conditional love of a helicopter dad. So like you'd write a half-decent concerto too. And so I think oftentimes we have this perspective that learning the actual talent and execution is this you know, insurmountable task. And we have to keep looking for that one creative skill that's easy for us, that comes quote unquote naturally. But the reality is that it doesn't come easy for anyone. Just oftentimes when we talk about talent, what we're talking about is people who started very young and their parents push them through the hard part. But nothing's easy in the beginning. You got to do the work. I think that's the thing that people often forget in the creative process, that, that it doesn't end with the creativity, it begins with the creativity. Yes, exactly. And so creativity is actually this much more complicated system of there's the timing, there's the skill, and there's the distribution. All three of those pieces have to be perfect for you to create a head. And that doesn't mean that it's magical, right? I think sometimes people say, well, the odds are small, so it must be magical when people do it. I actually think it's quite methodical. It's just difficult, right? And it's just hard. It takes a lot of work and preparation and thoughtfulness, but it's not impossible. To what extent were the people you talked to aware of this aspect of it, that it is hard, that it is hard work, and that that all the pieces do have to fall into place? Yeah, it's interesting. I was um, actually getting breakfast this morning um, with someone who's featured in the book, and we were talking about it, and the book had just come out, and you know, he had told me this quote from, I think it was Ira Glass, um, about how, you know, Ira Glass has this quote about how so many creatives, um, you know, don't cross this gap where in the beginning of the process, everything is hard, everything's terrible, and everything's work, and the only way you get through that process is to do the work. And um, doing the work is what gets you there. And so I think what you find is that the successful creators, they all realize how hard it is because they were there. <laughs> they went through it. And, um, you know, oftentimes this is when they were young, they had some parental pressure, there's some external forcing mechanism that actually was big primary motivator, but they still, they experienced it. And so this is why I think there's sort of among the creative class, there's this sort of awareness that what they're doing, I think this is why sometimes creators feel a sense of imposter syndrome, because they feel like they're sort of revered as these you know, magical creatures, and they're like, I am just struggling to somehow get these words onto a page and somehow make them good, and people keep telling me they love them and I'm amazing, but uh, to me, this is just a complete grind. And so I think there's this huge gap between the public perception of creativity and how creators actually think about it, and I think that gap is partly driven by capitalism. I mean, like, we want to hear these hero stories. That's what we want to talk about. Those are exciting. Those are, you know, there's a History Channel show on genius with a capital G, right? This is, this is part of how we like our culture to be. We like that there's these romantic figures and um, that sells books and magazines and stories. The, uh, the subset of that is the nexus between creativity and intelligence. Talk about that. 
Yeah, so one of the things that, you know, people sort of get into when they talk about creativity is they talk about, well, you know, you have to be a genius. And often when they're talking about that, they're talking about what they perceive intelligence to be, which is IQ. And there's a couple problems with that. Well, one is that the IQ test measures a very narrow set of cognitive skills. The second thing and the bigger issue is that actually when you look at the relationship between IQ and creativity, there's actually not much of one there. When they look at IQ and creativity and look for correlations, they find that pass an IQ of 104, which is pretty darn close to the, the median, um, everyone has the same creative potential. That's billions and billions of people with literally the same creative potential. There was a famous study done where Lewis Terman, who brought the IQ test to America, he took thousands of school-aged children in California, and he tested them. And what he wanted to prove was whether or not geniuses were normal from a mental health perspective. So he found 2,000 kids that genius-level IQs, and he started sending surveys every five years, and he called these kids, by the way, his termites, which is terrible branding. And even after he died, his protégés kept sending these surveys. It became the longest longitudinal study ever. And what they found was that these kids, these quote-unquote geniuses, well, they were pretty normal when it came to depression, suicide, alcoholism, divorce. But they were also pretty normal when it came to success. There were mechanics. There were retail clerks. There was, in fact... No one who became a household name and no Nobel laureates. Like, in fact, the only, two, the only two kids who he tested who went on to win Nobel um, prizes were two kids who didn't make the genius threshold. And so the relationship between IQ and creativity is just, it's not there. And so I think this is one of those things where, again, we have these internalized notions around creativity and what it means to us that have really conditioned us into having this very limiting belief about our potential, and it, it's destructive. Did all of this seem to be consistently true throughout every business sector that you looked at? Yeah, this is one of the fascinating things for me is that, you know, I tried to, in the interviews, I talked to business leaders, fine artists, popular artists, um, digital stars, startup people, chefs. I talked to Mission Star Chef. And one of the things that I thought was so interesting was how much parallel there is across all of this. I spend a bunch of time in the book talking about the day I spent with the Ben and Jerry's flavor development team, which is like, you know, the best job in America. And it was amazing as the process to come up with an ice cream flavor is very similar to the process to come up with a great movie idea and to get it to production, to get it to the box office. And it's very similar to the process to write a great novel. And so I do think that creativity wherever it's applied, actually has a lot of commonalities and patterns. That's why I actually think you see so many creatives are able to go on and go into new careers. You know, I interviewed Andrew Ross Sorkin for the book, who, you know, editor of the New York Times Dealbook blog, anchor on CNBC Squawk Box, wrote the book Too Big to Fail, co-created the TV show Billions. I mean, this guy has been on the top of four different careers. Um, you know, I didn't interview him, but Tom Ford, I think is a great example, you know, prolific fashion designer who 10 years ago broke into movies and has now created two wildly critically acclaimed movies. And, you know, that's an example where I think these people have learned how to learn. And that's a very powerful force that, you know, changes the world from two dimensions to three dimensions. And I think there's a lot that we can take from that. Well, I mean, the, the thing that underlies all that, that we can't forget that goes beyond creativity is talent in any particular mm. area. 
And this is where it's super interesting. So when I was getting into the book and just starting the research, I sort of had this notion that, you know, probably talent is overblown, but it probably exists. And one of the things I was surprised by is how much consensus there is among academics who study talent development that natural born talent probably doesn't exist. Probably what it really is is that very young, people start getting positive feedback on a certain skill and they decide to focus on that and our brain, especially when we're young, but even when we're older, we have neuroplasticity and neurogenesis. We're creating new brain cells. We're adapting to the world around us and we can start to get this compounding advantage of cognitive skills and mental representations of things. And so the result is that you actually see that, you know, probably talent doesn't exist. Probably people don't pop out of the womb playing the piano and it's probably just they started early, or sometimes it's a misattribution error. You know, there's the 11-year-old girl, the 11-year-old girl who goes to her first ever track practice, and she's an amazing sprinter. But um, the reality is, when she was five, her father started playing baseball with her in the backyard, and she's been sprinting between bases. And so she'd been practicing sprinting without even realizing it for six years. Right, but there may have been an underlying skill level, an underlying talent level that existed there, which is why, you know, Dad took her out in the back to play ball. I mean, there are certain things that that no matter what or no matter how much we may have had early training, we're not going to be able to do. I'm never going to be able to sing. I don't know what, what thing you may or may not be able to do, but we all have things that we are better at than other things. So, and this is where I disagree. Have you ever taken singing lessons? No. So, what you find is if you go on YouTube, there's an entire subgenre of YouTube videos of people, you know, 12 months before and after singing lessons. And what you find is that people are able to make these radical transformations. And, you know, if you ever watch a show, um, you know, so you think you can dance. Um, you see, um, or so what is celebrity, whatever the celebrity dance show is, right? Um, people are able to learn this stuff. And a lot of times we think that when something's initially hard or seems impossible, that it is impossible, and it isn't. It just seems impossible. Well, there is there a difference in your view between learning something, a basic skill set to get by, as opposed to a natural gift, a natural ability. There are people that can write, you know, fine, and they can write letters or they can write documents at work or whatever, but they, they're probably not going to write a, a great, the great American novel. And I would say that if they had spent, you know, 10, 20 years working on the craft of making a great novel, they could. I mean, this is what you find is that there isn't the story of someone going from zero to one. There aren't actually stories of someone waking up at the age of 25, having never written ever before and writing a great American novel. That's not how talent development works. And so we have these notions of, you know, talent as sort of striking people. But the reality is when you actually look at these stories of talent, I mean, Mozart's one of these great examples, right, where he started when he was three. Um, you know, J.K. Rowling's another example. The mythology of her is that, you know, she was struck with the idea for Harry Potter when she was on a train and just started flowing to her. And the reality is she had been reading since she was a little girl. She was a prolific reader. Her parents were always fighting, so she would lock herself in her, in her room and just read and read and read. And college, she had all these library finds. She had so many books taken out. And so, yeah, she daydreams about stories and characters. And, you know, she daydreamed about a pretty straightforward um, orphan rising story. And 
the idea that there'd be a wizard and that would be the context and it took her five years to write the first book. And so we have this idea, the sort of mythology of JK Rowling in our culture as she was struck with this idea and she wrote Harry Potter and look how successful she was. But she would tell you it's almost offensive, right? She would tell you she spent five years. She was on welfare for many of this time. She got depressed. Um, she once showed an interviewer a box of the 15 different variations of chapter one of book one that she had written trying to get it right. And so I think we've been sold this idea that natural born talent exists, but I just don't think it's true. There's not actually science to support it. Why then do you think that we love that mythology so much? Well, I think there's two reasons. One, I think we generally like hero stories. We generally think they're fun, they're interesting, they're exciting. I think there's also a more, there's sort of a negative undercurrent. And I think there's also an aspect of, we kind of would like to believe that there's something out there that is easy. There's something out there that for us, for other people, if you just look hard enough, you'll eventually find something that you're naturally good at. And I think that's why we like video games so much. Video games are designed to be easy in the beginning. It's very easy to level up in a video game in the beginning. It gets harder much later once you're already addicted to it. And so I think the thing you find is that, you know, deep down, subconsciously, as people, we do like homeostasis. We do like you know, being able to stay relatively calm. The idea of working 10 years at something is not that appealing. And I think we like the idea that, you know, maybe somewhere out there, there's something where, you know, with very little effort, we'll be great at. We all want to win the lottery. Alan Gannett, the book is The Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time. Alan, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you so much. Thank Bye. Thank you.